If you would turn with me to uh, the book of Acts, we'll start at the end of chapter 14 and, and read through the first 21 verses of chapter 15. This is a, a significant turning point in, in the book of Acts. You could spend a whole lot of time just in, in chapter 15, uh, but we're not going to spend a whole lot of time. We're just going to hit it in a couple of weeks uh, to hit this, this turning point of the Jerusalem Council, kind of a climax within the book of Acts. If you're able, would you stand with me as we read from this part of God's Word? I'll be starting in Acts chapter 14, verse 24, and read through chapter 15, verse 21. Pay careful attention. This is God's Word. Then they passed through Pisidia and came to Pamphylia. And when they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Italia. And from there they sailed to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had fulfilled. And when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them, and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And they remained no little time with the disciples. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved." And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles, and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders and and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, It is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. And all the assembly fell silent. They listened to Paul and Barnabas as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon, talking about Peter, has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. After this, I will return, and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord, and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he is read every Sabbath in the synagogues. 
Grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Please be seated. Would you pray with me? Lord, we thank you for your word, that you have revealed to us your will for our salvation, how we ought to live in response to your grace. You've not left us in the dark. And so, Father, we we thank you and we pray that your Holy Spirit, who inspired these words, would shine the light on them and on our hearts, that we might understand them, that we might believe them, that we might lay them up in our hearts and practice them in our lives. Lord, would you bear the fruit of your word through us, all to the glory of Jesus. For we pray in his name, amen. Well, one of the reasons that, uh, one of the compelling reasons I think that we can trust that the Bible is the word of God is because in many places, uh, scripture does not hide from us the conflicts that the church faced throughout the ages. Uh, there's, there's no candy coating, there's no glossing over the challenges that Christians have faced uh, in the scriptures. It presents to us times when the church was in conflict, times when there was disagreement, as we see the people who trusted Jesus trying to come to a deeper understanding of, of who he is and, and what he has done. In this way, I think you could say that the church is much more like a family than it is uh, like Disney World. I think, what, where does that come from? Uh, well, I think, I think often we think that the church is supposed to be like Disney World. You know what Disney World is called, right? The happiest place on earth. You go there, and, and it's true. If you go there, um, there's workers everywhere you know, doing little paint touch-ups, making everything look perfect. The workers who are there are typically very happy, very welcoming, even if you feel like you're putting them out for some reason. It's just this welcoming place, and it feels like the happiest place on earth. And in a sense, what's going on is they're kind of putting up a front, right? They're, they're creating this appearance that everything is perfect because they want you to stay there and spend a lot of money and have a lot of fun and all those types of things. And sometimes we can have this expectation that the church is kind of supposed to be like that, that once you are welcomed into the church, then it's all good. There's no conflict. There's no disagreements. There's no arguments. There's no controversy of any type. Uh, and yet that's not the case. We see that in the Bible, and I think our own experience proves that to be uh, true, despite maybe expectations. The church is more like a family. Uh, there's, there's a bond, right? There's, there's this connection between those who belong to Jesus, and it's a bond that's strong. It's a bond that is unbreakable, and yet, like, like many families, you know, sometimes we rub each other the wrong way. Sometimes there's friction. Sometimes there's heat. Sometimes there's conflict and disagreements, and yet, like a family, you work it out. And, and you've got these kind of underlying foundations that can't be changed, even if there is conflict along the way. Here in Acts chapter 15, we see a significant conflict in the life of the early church, particularly as they, they wrestled with this question of how does the law of Moses function, relate to the life of the church now that there are non-Jewish people being brought in, kind of en masse, 
You have all of these Gentiles who have been converted through the ministry of Paul and Barnabas on their first missionary excursion. They've gone out. They've gone kind of into deep into pagan territory uh, where they're much less of a Jewish population. And, and everywhere they've gone, there's been some Jews who have believed, who have embraced the message that Jesus is the long-promised Messiah. And there's many who have reacted with hostility and when that happens, we've seen Paul and, and Barnabas go to the Gentiles and proclaim to them that there is forgiveness of sins, that there is righteousness through faith in Jesus for all, for all who come to him. And, and as they've gone, as they've seen Gentiles come to faith in Jesus, they've seen the Holy Spirit poured out upon them as a sign that, that these, they really belong to God's people. At the end of chapter 14, we see Paul and Barnabas kind of making their way back through these cities where they had gone, encouraging people along the way, and they get back to home base, the church in Antioch, north of Jerusalem. This is the place that had sent them out, and in good missionary practice, they come back and they say, you sent us, you commissioned us to go on this, uh, this missions trip, now we're back, here's what we saw. We saw... God opening a door of faith to the Gentiles. And there's rejoicing in Antioch, which is kind of the first church where there's this mixed group of Jewish and Gentile believers in Jesus. They rejoice. Paul and Barnabas remain there for a while. And after a little while, chapter 15 tells us there's this occasion some men come down from Jerusalem, even though Jerusalem's in the south, you always go down from Jerusalem, uh, even if you're heading north. So they come down from Judea, from Jerusalem into Antioch, and there's a problem. There's a problem. Notice verse 1. Some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. That's a bold claim. Now, I think it's important for us to try to understand what's going on behind this problem because uh, there's a whole lot to it. But I think you can summarize it by saying that in essence what they were doing is they were adding to grace. They were adding something to the requirements that are given by God to, in order to belong to his people. They were adding to grace. And we see that this is a significant issue because in verse 2 it tells us that Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate. Don't you love the way Luke talks about things? He kind of emphasizes a positive thing by stating it in the negative. It's kind of like saying that Hurricane Hugo caused no small destruction in the state of South Carolina many years ago. It's, it's a way of emphasizing it caused a lot of destruction, right? It caused a lot of damage. And here Paul, uh, Luke is saying Paul and Barnabas had significant debate because of what was at stake here. What was at stake was not just a question of practice. Should we do this or that thing? Should we adhere to these customs or not adhere to these customs? Rather, what was at stake was the very nature and message of the gospel of grace in Jesus Christ. These men were not just claiming it's good practice for the Gentile men to be circumcised in order to be saved, they were saying it's necessary, that there's something that must be added to the grace of God in Jesus Christ in order for them to be saved. Now, what's behind this? This is an issue that's kind of been 
simmering in the book of Acts. It kind of rises to the surface in Acts chapter 7 with Stephen's speech uh, before he's killed, where he, he, he seems to kind of lower the expectation of how the law of Moses functions in the life of God's people. Uh, the issue kind of rises again when Peter goes to Cornelius, a Gentile God-fearer, and Cornelius and his household uh, believe the good news, and the Holy Spirit is poured out on them, and they're all baptized. None of them are required to be circumcised. They're welcomed in as Gentiles into the church of Jesus. And when Peter comes back from that, there's this question of, hey, what are you doing? Why are you having table fellowship with these Gentiles? And the issue has continued to be present as Paul and Barnabas have gone out and proclaimed the good news to Gentiles and seen God at work. There are two factors that kind of uh, influence this response of these men from Judea who come to Antioch. It all centers around the law of Moses. In the first century, Judaism uh, had turned the law of Moses into kind of a ladder, if you will. How, how will we make our way up to God? How will we make ourselves right with God? Well, here's the law. Here are the requirements of the law. And if I can be very simplistic, if we keep these requirements, then we will be good with God. You see this in Jesus' ministry, the story he tells about the Pharisee and the tax collector. The Pharisee approaches the altar there in the temple, and, and what does he say? He says, thank you, God, that I'm not like other men because I do all of these things. He keeps the law. Even Paul's own testimony of coming to know Christ uh, had this same impact. He says that with regard to the law, he was blameless. You see, they viewed the law as a ladder that they might climb in order to be made right with God. Now, there was this, an idea of grace built into that, but it largely emphasized their work with regard to the law. They had turned the law into a ladder instead of a mirror that revealed their own sin. The law had become their pride instead of their teacher to lead them to Christ and their desperate need of forgiveness. And it was also a primary defining mark of what it meant to belong to Israel. God had given them the law. It wasn't something they had made up. This was God's revealed law, and, and he had said to them, these are the ways that you will be marked off as my people in distinction from the Gentiles. In distinction from the rest of the nations, God gave the law to Israel and not to any other nation in the world at that time. And so it defined them. It marked them off as belonging in a special and unique way to God. And so you can think of, I mean, you can kind of put yourself in their shoes and understand some of the confusion when they hear Paul and Barnabas coming back and, and they're, yeah, we went to this town and we preached the gospel and, and our people, the Jews rejected it, but these Gentiles they loved what they were hearing, and God saved them as Gentiles. And we didn't circumcise them. We baptized them, and they belonged to the church. And, and you can kind of understand why this thing kind of boils over. been steaming for a while, and, and here it just kind of boils over. And they come and say, no, we've got to get some handle on this. These men must be circumcised. They must keep the law of Moses in order to be saved. Or to say it another way, as this group from among the Pharisees were saying, you've got to be part of Israel in order to be saved by Israel's Messiah. 
You've got to bear the marks of what it means to be Jewish in order to embrace the Messiah promised to the Jews. And that, that message was distorting in a subtle way the message of grace in the gospel by adding requirements to it. They had missed, in some ways, the fuller significance of who Jesus is, what he had done, and how that changed and clarified the role of Moses' law. And so, because they're all Christians, they believe that they need to settle this thing peaceably. They decide, we can't agree on this. Let's go to Jerusalem. Let's go settle this matter. And so they head to Jerusalem. We call this the Jerusalem Council. Some people call it the First General Assembly because it, it kind of mirrors Presbyterian church government, but we won't get into that uh, today. They, they recognize there's this local issue, but it has implications for all of the churches, and so we need to go uh, all together to this one place and settle the matter so that there won't be any more dispute about it. We'll have some authoritative answer. Uh, so they're sent on their way to Jerusalem, and notice beginning in verse 6, they're all gathered together to consider this issue, and there's a debate. And there's th- three things that kind of turn the tide that begin to answer the question. I'm just hit them briefly and focus on, on uh, James, the brother of Jesus, his part in this, and then try to draw some implications uh, for us today. You have first Peter's speech, and, and all of these kind of revolve around the work of God and the word of God. Is, is it required for these Gentiles to be circumcised to observe the law of Moses in order to be part of the church, in order to be saved? Peter stands up and he begins to testify to God's work among the Gentiles through him. Notice verse 7. He points out how God had chosen Peter to go, that the Gentiles would hear the word of the gospel and believe. And then verse 8, God himself bore witness uh, to them, to the Gentiles, by giving them the Holy Spirit, notice, just as he did to us. There's the witness of God's Spirit among the Gentiles. God brought them in. God himself testified that they belong by giving them the Holy Spirit, making no distinction based on circumcision or dietary laws. Cornelius and his household, in other words, were accepted into the church as they were, as Gentiles, without any extra requirements. And so you can kind of see the impact These guys are saying there's an extra thing that has to happen. And Peter is saying, God didn't require that. God God blessed them with the Holy Spirit. He made no distinction. There was no extra additional requirement given to them. Rather, they had their hearts cleansed by faith. Notice he also raises this question we'll come back to at the end. Why they are putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither they nor their fathers had been able to bear. Think about that for a second. Peter is pointing out to us the role of the law and how misusing that role can become a burden. He describes it as, as a yoke placed upon our necks that we cannot bear. And the idea here is that if, if you submit yourself to keeping the law as the requirement for salvation, you'll never do it. You, you cannot bear the weight of that load. 
I think in some ways, Peter is giving some nod, some allusion to Jesus's words that we read earlier in the service, where Jesus says, all who are weary and heavy laden, come to me. I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. You see, they had thought that by taking the law on, them, on themselves, by keeping the requirements as a way of salvation, that they were able to do it. And Peter is saying, this is a burden that will crush you because you cannot keep the law perfectly. You need another to do it in your place. And only Jesus is able to bear that burden for us. We cannot, our fathers were not, just look at the history of Israel. They couldn't do it because that's not what the law was intended to do. The law was meant to point them to Jesus the one who would fulfill the law in their place and who would bear their sins at his cross. And so he concludes by saying in verse 11, we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. That there's no difference. Either you are saved by grace alone or you are not saved at all. We don't add works onto works in order to get our way right with God. It must be through grace. Think about it this way. Um, Some of you are in the midst of raising young children, and and perhaps some of you have babies at home, and you've probably experienced uh, those long nights when a baby is up crying through the night, and all that you want to do is, is calm and soothe that child so that the child will start crying, get some rest, and consequently then you can also get some rest. And it's tempting to think that maybe if I'm just louder than the baby, I'll cause the baby to be quiet, right? And so you're holding the baby, the baby's screaming, and you're just going, shh, 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 shh. And you just get louder and louder, and you're just adding noise on top of noise and perhaps agitating the baby. Maybe it works for you. I don't know. But in a sense, that's, that's kind of how they were approaching the law. I just keep working, keep trying, keep adding work upon work upon work. Maybe at some point I will have enough that I will have passed the bar. And and Peter is saying, that's not what God did among the Gentiles. He didn't add anything to faith in Jesus, grace from Jesus. He saved them as they were without anything else. Trying to add work upon work is a burden that you can't bear. It will crush you if you don't depend on grace, if you're just relying on yourself and your own moral effort, you cannot bear that burden because there's a problem with the heart. It needs to be cleansed, and it can only be cleansed through faith in the Lord Jesus. Peter points out God gave them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. They're already saved. God has testified to it. We can't add anything else. They're all silent at this, and then they listen to Barnabas and Paul relate in similar ways what God has done. And then the final piece of this debate comes from the brother of Jesus, James. Um, this is not the apostle James. That, uh, one of those Jameses is dead at this point. But this is the brother of Jesus. James here not only points to Peter's testimony of God's work among the Gentiles, but he says that what Peter is saying is actually a fulfillment of what God has said. It's not just the witness of God's work by his spirit, but also the witness of God's word. And he quotes here from Amos chapter 9. He references the tent of David, God rebuilding the tent that has fallen, 
And as a result of that rebuilding, that Gentiles will seek the Lord. Now, this is kind of an obscure prophecy. Um, what does James mean by this? How is this at all part of the argument? Part of what James is pointing to is that the Lord had made a promise that he would restore the king from David's line. And as we've seen throughout the book of Acts, all of that is pointing to Jesus. And all of it is pointing to Jesus rising from the dead as the fulfillment of this promise to David, that one of David's line would sit on David's throne forever. So when Amos talks about the Lord rebuilding the tent of David, he's not talking about a temple. He's talking about Jesus, who is the true temple of the living God. And that when he raises Jesus from the dead, something shifts. And there is this witness of grace that now goes out to all the nations so that the nations themselves, the Gentiles, will seek the Lord and will call upon his name. And so James is pointing to the fact that the things that they're seeing, the things that Peter and Paul and Barnabas had all testified to, were actually promised by the Lord in the prophets. And so they should not add any trouble to those Gentiles who were turning to the Lord. John Stott says about this passage, as the church tried to wrestle through confirming the grace of God in the gospel, not adding to it, but also preserving love between the Gentiles and the Jews. He says that this outcome is a victory of truth, confirming the gospel of grace and a victory of love, preserving gospel fellowship between Jew and Gentile Christians because it directed them to the fact that their fellowship and their salvation was based not on ethnicity not on the laws of Moses, but rather based on who Christ is and what he had done. Notice this last sentence in verse 21 at the end of James's speech here. He says, don't trouble them. Don't tell them they need to observe the law. Just give them these three things or these four things to keep them from idolatry. And then verse 21, for from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he's read every Sabbath in the synagogues. I often scratch my head at that verse. I never quite understood why James ends his speech by saying, Moses has read every, every Sabbath in all the synagogues. We don't need to trouble them. I think part of what he's saying, this, this is a little bit my take on it, um, but I think this is right. I think part of what James is saying is the message of the gospel of grace as it's fulfilled in Jesus, is unique. And it's different than the law of Moses as it's read and interpreted in the synagogues every Sabbath. In other words, I think James is saying this general message that you can be right with God by things that you do uh, is heard in the synagogues every Sabbath through the reading of the law, because they don't understand who Jesus is. You can find that message, in essence, he's saying, anywhere. But the message that there's grace from God through Jesus Christ, that's only in the church. We're the only ones who have that message. Uh, let me illustrate it just kind of from contemporary uh, culture, if, if you will. We're, we're all kind of hardwired to uh, find it difficult to receive a gift, 
purely and freely. Right? We, all, we all feel like there's some extent to which we have to earn what's given to us. It's, it's just built into us um, as part of fallen creation. I've got to earn it. If you give something to me or if somebody gives something to you, what's your kind of immediate inner response? It's probably a, a response of gratitude, but, but probably you also start thinking like, oh, I need to do something back. I need to repay this gift. And yet how many of you on your birthday when somebody gives you a gift, do you say, oh, I've got something for you also. Let me go grab it. But there's something in us that has a hard time accepting that the living God would simply forgive us, make us right with himself, and do it all apart from anything that we contribute to it. That he would forgive our sins, not because we've earned it, but because somebody else stood in our place. That he would count us as righteous, not because we have earned it, but because someone else has stood in our place and done it for us. We, we struggle to accept the message of grace. Uh, and so we feel like it's up to us. Just recently, um, well, not recently, I guess it was last May, uh, there was a commencement address at New York University. Anybody watch this commencement address? It's a very famous doctor, a learned doctor that gave the commencement address at the graduation of New York University. Anybody know who I'm talking about? Dr. Taylor Swift. <laughs> she was given an honorary doctorate by New York University. And, uh, and so she was giving the commencement address. And, and part of what she said to these graduates from this you know, prestigious university right there in the heart of Manhattan, uh, as she was sending them off to go you know, change the world or whatever you tell graduates from college these days, uh, she said, I've got good news for you. I'm talking about kind of finding meaning and identity in life. She said, I've got good news for you. It's up to you to find out who you are, to establish meaning for yourself. And then she says, I've got bad news for you. It's up to you to find meaning and identity for yourself. Her learned doctorate clearly came into play there as she expressed this message to these graduates. Um, and it's, that's kind of the tension that we live in, in in our world today. The world is saying, if, if you want to know who you are, you want to have identity, you want to have hope, you want to have meaning, you don't look above the sun. It's up to you. you you've got to find it for yourself. Look inside and discover it from the inside out. And, and that's kind of the, the gospel of works as it exists in our culture today, that everything is up to you. And somehow Dr. Swift recognized that at the end of the day, that's terrible news. You weren't made to bear the burden of developing, defining your own identity, of defining meaning, ultimate meaning of giving yourself hope. You were not made for that because you were made to find those things in Jesus alone, and through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so at the end of the day, this kind of interesting debate that the early church was having about circumcision and dietary laws, at the end of the day, it comes down to this issue of grace. Will we trust, will we believe that the way to salvation, the way to forgiveness, the way to hope and identity that lasts forever is not based on anything that we do, 
but it's all a gift based on what Christ has done in our place and received through faith. And if we don't believe that, if we think that it's up to us to, to contribute something, even if you might think, I just contribute this much. Maybe you don't think you contribute this much, just this much. Even if you think that, Peter is saying, that's a burden nobody can bear. You weren't made to bear it, but Jesus came to bear that burden for you, to take your sin on himself at the cross, to give you his righteousness as a gift so that Paul in his own life can say, I was blameless with regard to the law, did all these things, I was good. It's all loss. It's all rubbish in comparison to knowing Christ as Lord and finding righteousness in him through faith and not through my own obedience. The early church was able to preserve this message of the gospel of grace, to preserve the unity of fellowship between Jew and Gentile, not because they ignored the problem, but because they found its resolution in Jesus, risen from the dead, the one who is Lord of all and who welcomes all to himself through faith. This is the message of grace. What can we learn from uh, the early churches coming to this conclusion as, as they did? One, I think it's worth asking ourselves in every generation, what are the cultural, traditional, even theological rules that we are implicitly requiring of others in order to, for them to be saved? Are, are we setting up unnecessary hindrances for people to come to Christ? Are we saying you've got to be and do this first and then you can come to Jesus? Or are we offering, even at the risk of being misunderstood, the grace of God in Jesus Christ, that all you do is come and you embrace him and he saves you, he changes you, but do we require people to change first? I mean, we have to ask ourselves that question in every generation because this issue comes up in every generation. Are we implicitly setting up barriers to the gospel of grace or are we freely offering Jesus? to all who would come to him, regardless of background, regardless of past sins, regardless of what you look like, where you come from, whatever. The gospel of grace is for all. That's why it's grace. Secondly, and finally, I think it's worth saying, there might be a number of things that Christians can and perhaps ought to legitimately disagree about without there being division. Uh, you don't have to have a certain view of politics a certain view of economics. You don't have to have a certain view of what type of school your children ought to go to. There's all types of things that Christians have opinions about that we can disagree about without it being a source of division. The gospel of grace is not one of those things that you can compromise on or that you can have a significant disagreement about without there being division. It is that fundamentally important and worth preserving and even contending for because if you don't have the message of grace, then you don't have good news. But if you have the message of grace, you can figure out all of those other things. But ultimately, the message of grace is a message about who God is and how we relate to him and how he relates to us in Jesus Christ. There is no more important issue for you personally to grasp or for the church itself to get right 
and to guard and to keep making sure that we get right. Let me end with this thought. This is an encouragement to hold on to grace. Some of us struggle to believe that God can forgive, that God can accept. And it's, I think, encouraging to know this, that the thing about you or about me that disqualifies me from being right with God is the same thing that everybody else has to deal with as well, our sin. You don't have more disqualifications than anybody else. And the way to be qualified to be right with God is not different for some. It's the same for all. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ who died, who was raised, and who promises to cleanse our hearts through faith in him as he does for all who come to him. Would you pray with me?